Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, February 22nd. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the mayor of the capital city assesses the city's infrastructure and water challenges following a week-long winter storm. Then, vaccine hesitancy continues to be prominent within the black community, including healthcare workers. Plus, the Society of Archivists responds to a bill designed to restructure the Board of Archives and History. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Parts of Mississippi are still under a boil water advisory nearly a week since the winter storm started. Temperatures in much of the state rose well above freezing over the weekend, allowing much of the accumulated ice to melt. But in the state's capital city, crews are working to restore water and deliver bottled water to the city's most vulnerable. Mayor Shokwe Antar Lumumba says the city was not built to sustain an event like last week's storm. He shares more with our Becca Schimmel. Oh, it's been very, very trying. Our infrastructure was not built uh, to withstand, uh, you know, the, the temperatures that we've experienced over the last few days. Um, and, and you know, uh, we've seen failures across the city. Uh, and, and so we're just trying to make certain that, that we can increase water pressure, that we can uh, see the equipment in our water treatment facility thaw out so that we can we can get the water to the residents, and we're playing catch-up in our tanks uh, so that that water pressure can, can build, uh, as well as, you know, working out the logistics of getting people water right now who need it. So we're trying to discover where bottled water is. Uh, we've been experiencing uh, distribution issues throughout the city at the grocery stores and, and the places that we would normally secure water that we provide to people uh, because those trucks, the, the 18-wheelers, were unable uh, to, to you know, uh, manage their way through the iced uh, highways. And so that, that's where we stand today. So how have you all been dealing with this shortage of drinkable, potable water during this week, during this unprecedented storm? Uh, you know, families have, have been managing. Uh, I'm certain that, that, you know, they have loved ones, some of which may have had, may have been better resourced than others. Uh, that, have, that have been trying to help out. Uh, as a city, we've worked through MEMA to secure water bottles uh, to the extent that they were stockpiled, that we could utilize those. Um, personally, you know, wherever I could find a grocery store or, you know, any type of distributor, any type that had water, we located it. You know, we, you know, made agreements with certain contractors who have non-potable water uh, so that, 
that people can fill up the jugs that they may have so they can flush toilets and and do the sanitary things that they need to do around the house. <clears throat> it's been extremely challenging, but, you know, uh, our effort has been to, to look high and low uh, in every corner for which we, we could find resources to pro- provide to people. I'm sure you've had a lot of conversations on the technicalities of water pumps and uh, power supply and things like that over the past few days. But how do you explain to, you know, the people in Jackson, Mississippians, why it is that they're having trouble with their water if their pipes haven't frozen and they have mm-hmm. their their power on? Well, you know, in, in this position, it requires you to, you know, uh, be in a position of uh, or a state of constant study and, and, and learning. And so as I have learned and, and understood the mechanics of what it takes to produce and generate water in the system, then, then you know, I explain what I now understand. Uh, you know, from the very onset in which water is taken out of the reservoir uh, and brought through our system, uh, there were challenges there. Uh, the, the screens and, and the system that takes that water up was frozen. Uh, much of the water in the reservoir itself was frozen. So imagine trying to suck up ice uh, into, a, into a system in order uh, to generate water. And so that created a complication. Uh, the the mechanics and the machines that the valves that the water flows through were frozen shut. Uh, so imagine how that how that becomes a challenge when you're trying to produce water in the system. Uh, and so all of those things led to a decrease in production of water and to the distribution of water. And while that decrease took place, while that was while that was uh, you know uh, slowed down significantly, slowed down significantly. Uh, you still had the consumption of water from people, which drained our tanks. And so we're trying to push that forward and trying to rebuild those tanks. But it is that constant, that constant catch-up process while you're not at full steam in terms of the normal PSI, the normal pressure, the normal process by which they can, they can put out water. Uh, with all of that equipment failing, it means that it, it makes it more difficult for the water to be generated. Uh, what I explained to them is, is quite honestly, our infrastructure, our city was not built to withstand 18-degree weather, uh, and especially 18 to 30-degree weather for a protracted period of time. And because we, we've now seen that for an unprecedented and unusual period of time, uh, we are suffering the consequences of an infrastructure that wasn't built in that way, uh, infrastructure that costs hundreds of millions of dollars uh, to to deal with. And, and so... You know, what we ask for is is our pre- our residents' patience. Uh, we want to give them, you know, we want to give them the truth. Uh, we, we have to be blatantly honest uh, while at the same time trying to inform them in a way that gives them uh, a reason for optimism going forward. And so we are optimistic. We are seeing gains, uh, but we have to communicate plainly and not um, not mislead the public in any in any way. Jackson Mayor Shokwe Antar Lumumba. Coming up, vaccine hesitancy continues to be prominent within the black community, including health care workers. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. 
This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. While many people are clamoring to get a coronavirus vaccine, some are choosing not to get it right now. Vaccine hesitancy appears to be happening more within the black community and among black health care workers. Shalina Chatlani with the Gulf States Newsroom talked with black women in the healthcare field about what's guiding their choices. Mary Williams is a strong believer in taking charge of her own health. In fact, the 50-year-old nurse from Clinton, Mississippi, hosts a podcast about it. But one of my why is because of my mom. And all- Williams' mom had a heart attack when she was in her 60s. In a recent podcast episode, Williams talked about how her mom's white doctors didn't take the time to explain to her how to get better before she left the hospital. Then they sent her home with some papers. The information is not enough. Sometimes you need people to walk things out with you. There are many examples throughout history of black patients being mistreated in the medical system. But Williams has been a nurse for over 20 years and says the examples she's seen firsthand are a bigger factor in her mistrust. And I know what the behind the scenes look like. I know what the systemic racism is in healthcare. care. So when it comes to coronavirus, Williams says she has no plans to get a vaccine. She wants to see more data first. Right now, I, I just don't have the trust that I would feel comfortable getting it. But this is somewhat of an emergency. Gwendolyn Lyle, a nurse in Terry, Mississippi, says she was also hesitant. But she did her research and was reassured by prominent scientists who say the vaccine's safe and essential for stopping the spread. We're at a point where we're going to have to trust somebody right now. She prayed and then she got the vaccine. Coronavirus vaccine hesitancy is a national issue among healthcare workers. In a national survey of 2,500 healthcare workers in January, 15% of respondents decided not to get the vaccine. But among black healthcare workers, 35% declined the shot. Dr. Fatima Stanford is a public health researcher at Harvard. She says a person's comfort in medicine is often tied to how they are treated in healthcare settings. You would think that being in the healthcare system would allow our voices to be heard, but I've often found that, you know, I'm just another person with black skin. Stanford says trust can be built, but that depends on the messaging. For a study over the summer, Stanford and other doctors recorded messages about coronavirus precautions and sent them to more than 14,000 black and Latino adults. Stanford said straightforward messages stuck with people more. So for vaccine messaging, she also suggests keeping it simple. Not going into, you know, the doses should be this and we're storing this at this temperature. I mean, it's like resonating for why it matters right now. You probably have some friends and family that have died. How do we help avoid that situation for you? The study also found that black participants seem to trust black doctors more than doctors of other races. The problem is that only 5% of doctors in the United States are black. It's a lot of work put on a very small group of people. But some black healthcare professionals are stepping up. I am Sonia Fuqua. I'm a registered nurse. And I know vaccines are safe. 
That's a PSA that Fuqua recorded after she became one of the first five people in Mississippi to get vaccinated. Fuqua was thrilled to be a role model, not just for the black community, but also for black nurses. And when she shared her experience online, many people reached out to her. Several people responded and said, because I saw you, I'm going to go ahead and do it. Of course, she says, outreach isn't going to convince everyone. It's not going to turn on a dime, but what works is working. You just need to continuously do it. As for Mary Williams, the nurse who's not planning on getting a coronavirus vaccine, she says she'll become more trustworthy of the medical system if the attention on helping the black community continues beyond the pandemic. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Shalina Chutlani. This story was produced as part of a regional collaboration with public media stations in Louisiana, Alabama, and Mississippi. Reporter Shalina Chutlani joined us to take a closer look at the hesitancy among black healthcare workers to take the coronavirus vaccine. So one of the surprising things is that healthcare providers are on the front lines. You know, it would seem like they would be the ones most anxious to get some protection. Yeah, it is really counterintuitive that, you know, this is happening. And the reality is healthcare workers are anxious to be protected. They, you know, want to go to work and have that protection, not get coronavirus. But I'm hearing a couple things from based on the interviews I've had with healthcare workers. So the first is that, you know, these workers are embedded in medicine. They understand how drugs and vaccines and other medicines are produced, and they know that it can take years and years. And so they're seeing a vaccine that's being developed under a program called Warp Speed, and it doesn't sit well with them. It makes them a little bit uncomfortable. So that's one factor that I saw in in a reason why people would say no to the vaccine. Now, another reason, which is more specific to what my feature is getting to, is Black healthcare workers are declining the vaccine at a higher rate. And some of the women that I spoke to in the healthcare field said, Part of that reason is not just because of historical racism that they have seen, but the racism that they see on the job every single day. And that has really, um, you know, provided fodder for the mistrust that they have in the medical system. You know, in your piece, you mentioned examples of medical racism throughout history, I mean, not just with this pandemic, and how that has factored into people's hesitancy to get the vaccine. Tell us more about that. Sure. Well, you know, one of the most common examples that we're hearing these days is the Tuskegee study. You know, it started in Tuskegee, Alabama in the 1930s. Black men were left to suffer from syphilis for decades, even after a cure was found. There was no informed consent. And that's a case that's definitely led to mistrust. But there are also examples, other examples throughout history, like James Marion Sims, He's known as the father of modern gynecology, and he, he developed techniques that brought him to fame, but he was experimenting on enslaved women in Alabama in the 1840s. So I could go on and on with other examples, um, but these are some that I've been hearing a lot. That's pretty horrific. <laughs> uh, yeah. So the hesitancy in getting the vaccine is a national issue. You focused on Mississippi. Do we have a sense of how many healthcare workers are getting the vaccine here? Yeah, so I decided to focus on Mississippi because, in fact, it is pretty difficult to get data from a lot of these hospital systems on just how much of their staff is being vaccinated. But 
I was able to get data from the University of Mississippi Medical Center, which is the largest hospital in the state of Mississippi. So it's pretty representative because there are about 10,000 employees there. And what we saw in the data is that up to this point, um, and they are just beginning a wait list for vaccinations, so far, 60% of the staff that have been vaccinated have been white, compared to 30% of the staff that have been vaccinated, which have been black, um, you know, within their share of the staff population. So that is in line with a trend that we're seeing nationally, generally when it comes to vaccine hesitancy within the black community. We see in states like Alabama, while black residents make up around 32% of the population, excuse me, we see now in we see in states like Alabama, while Black residents make up 28% of the population, they've only got been accounted for 11% of the vaccinations. You know, in Mississippi, that figure is around 20% of vaccinations that have been administered so far, but Black residents make up 38% of the population. So this hesitancy that we are seeing nationally. Um, it's something that is still playing out among healthcare workers. Shalina, tell me this: of the black healthcare workers who have been vaccinated, are they having any influence over their black coworkers or even in the black community in general? Absolutely. So that was the one part of the story that I was getting into with uh, Sonia Fuqua, who is a nurse who was one of the first five people in Mississippi to get vaccinated. In her story, she talked about, you know, wanting to step up to be a role model to encourage not only other Black residents to get vaccinated, but also to represent Black nurses and to show, you know, her colleagues that she felt like it was safe and to encourage them to get it. And she talked about how nurses that had worked with her would reach out to her over text and say, you know, how are you doing? How are you feeling? Okay, I see that you're you're doing okay. I think I'm going to get it now. So we're definitely seeing that that role model, that advocacy factor is still really important, even when it comes to to reducing hesitancy within black healthcare staff. Shalina Chatlani is with the Gulf States Newsroom, and the Gulf States Newsroom is a regional collaboration with public media stations in Louisiana, Alabama, and Mississippi. Shalina, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Coming up, the Society of Archivists responds to a bill designed to restructure the Board of Archives and History. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Quietly last week, the Mississippi Senate passed Senate Bill 2727, a bill proposing a restructuring of the board of the Mississippi Department of Archives and History. Founded in 1902, MDAH is the second oldest agency of its kind. As currently designed, new board members are nominated from within the existing board and then confirmed by the Senate. According to the bill, board members will become 
become political appointees of the governor and lieutenant governor. Some, like the Society of Mississippi Archivists, see this as a move to politicize a traditionally nonpartisan agency. Jessica Perkins-Smith is president of the society. She fears the change would jeopardize how the agency honestly shares the state's complex history. So we see this kind of as a solution looking for a problem. And our concern is that the board has, the NDAH has been doing really good work in the state and without political intervention, without kind of overt political intervention. And so our concern is that placing this in one arm under the executive branch would diminish that. Um, some examples of the work that the that the board um, and MDAH have been able to achieve over the past over 50 years and largely under the leadership of um, William Winter were um, the opening of the Eudora Wealthy House, um, the re- uh, receiving the um, Medgar Evers papers, the opening of the new Archives and History building in 2003. And that building really made it possible for, um, you know, researchers, it kind of became a destination. Mississippi as a MDH became a destination for civil rights researchers specifically. Um, and then, of course, in the past couple of years, the two museums, the Museum of Mississippi History and Civil Rights Museum, um, our concern is that politicizing this agency um, would diminish the work that um, curators, archivists, and historians are, have been able to do. Um, that is really has really made some strides in telling the truth about Mississippi's complex history. Um, I think it's been pointed out by reviewers that have reviewed the museum, the Civil Rights Museum, that it doesn't sugarcoat um, this kind of racially violent past at all. Um, and that's our goal as as archivists is to um, use our primary sources, use the evidence that we have um, to tell the truth about our state, um, even though it is a difficult um, history. So our concern is that politicizing that would um, minimize the ability to tell that truth. Um, And then we also think this kind of has potentially broad implications um, for maybe hiring practices at MDAH. We, I mean, you know, we don't know what the implications are. Late last year, Governor Reeves released his state budget as he would any year and included in that was a line item of $3 million to go toward a patriotic education fund. He referred to current education in history as revisionist, and that is poisoning a generation. Do you think that's what's motivating this legislation? That is a concern, yes. Republicans have been pushing toward educating Mississippi history students in a more patriotic manner, and I guess the governor referring to what's going on currently as revisionist, the other side would be, well, that's revisionist. Um, Is that the position that the society takes? So the society is nonpartisan and is not taking a partisan position. Um, But as archivists, we um, strive to tell the truth. Um, We strive to collect stories of underrepresented groups and underrepresented populations. Um, And Mississippi has a very fraught history, and it's not always, it's not pleasant. Um, But one thing that I think we've seen, especially with the opening of the museums over the past couple of years, is that people appreciate um, that honesty. School children are able to come 
and learn about civil rights history at the museum. Um, and it's become a destination for people around the world. Um, and I, with the changing of the flag over the past summer, um, we, you know, a large part of that was political or economic pressure um, from, you know, the NCAA and other groups that threatened to pull money and events from the state. And we are really concerned that this would only set us back um, to, you know, pre the pre-flag change, that this would um, kind of politicizing this this board would set us back. And we've come so far. This is an agency that has really worked well. And as was mentioned, you released a statement from the Society of Mississippi Archivists uh, in reaction to the to this action. It has passed the Senate, and now it goes to the House. What are you asking Mississippi residents to do? We are asking Mississippi residents to um, contact their representatives. They can share our statement. It is on our um, Society of Mississippi Archivists website, and it's on our Twitter page. Um, they are free to share our statement if they'd like for some background or if they want to just learn some background on MDAH and the work that it's done. Um, We're asking folks to contact their representatives and ask them to vote no on this bill. Jessica Perkins-Smith is the president of the Society of Mississippi Archivists, and I thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.